Hmm. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Um, you may have noticed we're, we're missing a few. And uh, I think somewhere between the ICE and the Omicron variant, uh, we have got several out. Um, and I would encourage you to pray uh, for our church family. We have several who, are, who have experienced some losses here in, uh, in, recent, uh, in recent days. Uh, some of you who are older, Chili Bible folks may remember Tom and Pam Rice. And Pam went home to be with the Lord on Friday afternoon due to COVID. Um, also, um, Kathy Wright, our sister here, lost her mother uh, just a few days ago to COVID. And uh, so this is having an effect on some of our members. We've got several who are out sick also this week. Uh, Josh and I were scrambling uh, this week with uh, not as much help in the office as we're accustomed to. And so I uh, would encourage you to pray for our church and our our members, uh, as several are sick. Uh, Karen, uh, her father went in for uh, a heart procedure on Friday, had to spend the night in the hospital, still having some some heart issues, not enough to keep him from, from going to church this morning, contrary, I think, to his doctor's orders. But, but nonetheless, uh, her dad is, um, is someone that I would encourage you to ask you to pray for. Uh, with us uh, as he tries to recover from this heart procedure. So um, anyway, want to want to lift these families before the Lord and our church family and ask God's protection on all of us as we um, before we enter into our time in God's word. So if you would please pray with me. God our heavenly Father, we thank you that according to your word, according to your promise given to us on Jesus' own lips, that you are always with us and that you never forsake us and that we can count on you through every circumstance of life. We never need wonder where you are. And yet sometimes, Father, uh, when we're grieving and hurting, we do wonder. Help us, Father, to remember that you are right there with us, carrying us through the midst of every circumstance. Father, we ask for you to um, be present in a special way to our brother Tom Rice as he's grieving the loss of his dear wife of many years, Pam. And also Kathy, our sister, uh, as she grieves the loss of her mother Dolly um, this past week. Father, it's been a tough week, a tough year, a tough season for many of us. Father, we pray you'd put your hand of protection over our church. And we know that many are out sick and uh, recovering and, and struggling uh, sometimes to recover. Uh, but Father, we pray for, uh, for your hand to be on those of us who are sick. We especially lift up Margaret Myers as she remains in the hospital. Father, we pray for complete healing for Margot. Uh, we pray that you would uh, bring her safely out of the hospital and back to us, that we might sing of your goodness and praise uh, your mercy for her. Father, I ask for my father-in-law, Don, that you would heal his heart. Uh, Father, as we age, uh, we have all kinds of things that go wrong with us. 
But Father, he is a, a godly man who loves you. And I pray that you would extend his years, and that you would protect his, his life and uh, enable him to continue to minister before you and to, to love Sharon and uh, Karen and all of us uh, in the way that he has for all these years. Uh, Father, we pray for your protection, your healing. And Father, I pray for our time in your word. Uh, Father, may we see your hand, your character, your goodness, your sovereign plan, your love for your people uh, flow through our time in this book. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am really happy to be back with y'all. Um, today is the beginning, the first day, of a short new series I'm going to do in the book of Esther. And we're going to look at the whole book. Um, and this book is a familiar story to a lot of us. Uh, if you've watched Veggie Tales, they have a version of this, right? Um, if you uh, are maybe a little more cinematic, you know, they have a movie that came out a few years ago called One Night with the King. Uh, presents this story. So it's a familiar story. Um, but there, may, there are some things about this book uh, that you may not know. Uh, for example, it is the only book in all of the Bible in which God is never mentioned. His name never appears in this entire book. Because of that, the early, the early church fathers wrote zero commentaries on this book. Uh, they felt that uh, weren't sure if it should be even in there. After all, it's not a book that talks about God that mentions him in any way. Uh, the author of Esther also never mentions worship or prayer or the temple in Jerusalem or sin or righteousness or God's law or many of the other things we might expect. The main human characters in this book are not even particularly righteous people. They have, in fact, adopted in Mordecai's case as his name, the name of a Babylonian god. And his Hebrew name is never known if he even has one. And the, the woman whose name is the title of this book is the name of a Persian goddess of fertility, Ishtar. Esther. So what is this book doing in your Bible? Why study this little book? Why is it here? It is because, I think, because despite the absence of God's name, this book has a lot to teach us about who God is and how he works through circumstances where his presence is not obvious. For the good of his people and the accomplishment of his good and sovereign purposes for them. So I want to dive into the book of Esther with you. I'm going to look at all of chapter 1, but I'm just going to read a portion of it to begin. And so if, if you're able, uh, if you'd stand with me as I read verses 1 through 9. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the 
uh, nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, drinks of different uh, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast to the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let me pray for us again. Father, I pray this morning as we worship our way through a portion of your word this morning. Father, I pray that you might give us new eyes to see you at work in all of our circumstances in this new year. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, Esther begins by giving us a little background on when this story takes place. Uh, it's during the reign of King Ahasuerus, uh, who is otherwise known to history by the name Xerxes. Some of you guys have seen the movie The 300, right? That comic book adaptation of some events in Xerxes' reign, where he appears as this giant fellow riding on a platform that's carried by uh, like 50 guys. Um, he was the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, which stretched from Ethiopia to what is now western Pakistan, uh, but was part of India in those days, across the Mediterranean Sea. So if you go north from Ethiopia all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, the island of Cyprus, uh, all of what is now modern-day Turkey, all of eastern Greece and uh, parts of Macedonia, all the way over through the area called Bactria uh, in Central Asia, a vast empire. The largest empire that had ever existed in the history of the world to that time, still in the top 50 largest of all time. Huge amount of land that was controlled by this guy. And his reign began 53 years after his great-grandfather Cyrus allowed the Jews to return uh, back to Israel and to rebuild the temple. Xerxes was assassinated about 20 years after he came to the throne. And, and before Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and helped rebuild the walls and rebuild the city there. Uh, one, of his, one of the inscriptions of this man's reign from modern-day Armenia reads this way. Now, see if you can catch the, the, the tone of this. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of the provinces with many tongues, the king of this great earth far and near. 
He was the greatest king in world history up to that time, and he regards himself as king of all kings, king of the whole earth. Does that sound boastful a little bit? By the way, if you've read your Bible, have you heard anyone else use that title, King of Kings? Right? This is the guy who claims rulership over all people on the earth. Xerxes. He is the ruler of the greatest empire the world had seen to that point, the world's superpower of his day. He ruled over many kings and many languages. He was still the ruler of the Jewish nation, a few thousand of which did return to Judah in the days of his great-grandfather. But the Jewish nation as such did not exist. There were a few scattered Uh, Jews living in what used to be the land. But the city of Jerusalem is at this time a ruin. The temple that was rebuilt in those days was a shadow of its former glory. It was smaller. The glory of God did not return as it did in the days of Solomon and dwell there. In fact, the people who rebuilt it, when they saw it completed, they wept. The ones who had seen it in its previous incarnation. Because it was sad to them in comparison. The walls of the city that was completely a ruin are also a ruin. Broken down walls a little bitty temple and scattered people. And it would have seemed to many Jews like Xerxes' description of himself, his title that he gives to himself is not an idle boast. He was the emperor, the ruler of the world's unquestioned superpower. And it was this ruler This grand king over many kings who gave this impressive banquet in the third year of his rule. We know this happens in about 485 B.C. historically. And the the banquet lasted for six months. 180 days. Six months. Now that's a party. Amen? That is a party. And he needed it to last for six months because this guy, uh, he had ruled over 127 provinces. So we got to cycle through the government of all 127, plus just the expeditionary force of his army. In other words, the part that left the capital city to go and conquer new areas consisted of over a million people. A million people on foot, armed with swords and spears and in chariots and on horseback. A million guys. And he had them all come through. And this this feast has two purposes. One, it is to show off how great and glorious and fabulously wealthy I am. And also, it was a war council. We know from history that 
that uh, Xerxes gathered all of his army and all of his officials because he was going to do the thing that his father had been unable to do and go to the west and conquer the Greeks. Or at least that was his plan. It turns out somewhat differently. As 300 Spartans and 700 uh, Thebans and a few scattered others hold them off a million men at the hot gates, the Battle of Thermopylae in the west at Greece, and then later defeat him. The Athenian navy defeats him at the Battle of Salamis, and many of his ships are sunk and his troops drowned. And world history turns at that battle. Interesting. He has to go back with his tail between his legs. But he is displaying the lavishness of his wealth and he is trying to say, look, what my father has been, able, been unable to accomplish, I have the swat to make happen. I have the wealth, I have the resources, I have the military, I have the power to do this and we're going to do it by God. And, and you just need to follow me. Here we go. Right? He is doing this um, at the Winter Palace in Susa. The Summer Palace was in Persepolis, and it is still around. The ruins of it are still around. Also, the ones at Susa are still around. You can't see them because they're in Iran, and they don't like Americans there. Uh, but they are there, and uh, they are grand indeed. And Susa is the winter palace, and, and they have at the end of the six months of feasting, they have a smaller gathering, uh, which is just for those who dwell in the citadel at Susa. And, and I think it's just members of the royal court and the close officials, the people of the palace. It's held in the courtyard of his garden. And the text doesn't specify this, what the purpose of this smaller gathering is, but I think it's kind of an appreciation party for all the people who've been involved in pulling off the previous six months' festivities. Now that we've got all this done, now it's time for us who pulled this off. It's been a rousing success to kick back our heels and enjoy ourselves for seven days. And nobody has to drink, but the bar is open 24 hours. And you can have whatever and in whatever quantity you want. And everybody gets their own unique glass. So you don't have to keep track. You don't have to have, you know, names written on your golden cup. Because yours just looks like yours. If you can imagine the level of wealth that would create that many individual, individually designed golden vessels to drink out of. And they are on gold and silver couches out in the courtyard of this garden surrounded by marble pillars with silver rods hanging curtains outdoors in a garden party. And the pavement that they're dining on, imagine this. I've been in some jewelry stores and bought stuff, you know. You buy these sparkly rocks, and they charge you like two months' salary for these things, right? They're using them as asphalt 
in this garden. Amazing, right? The level of wealth and power on display is meant to impress. It's a scene out of a dream for many of these people who are present at this party and they're enjoying it and everybody is getting three sheets to the wind. They are, they are drunk as a skunk after seven days of this, right? There's more to the story. Let's read on. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's Bible for drunk as can be, he, commands, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. But the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea will have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not ever be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed, and he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, to every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So here's the situation, okay? The king is drunk, along with almost everyone else. Queen Vashti is overseeing her own party for all the women who are invited. And the king decides that the pinnacle of the banquet, the thing which will really show off his royal wealth and power, is to bring in his wife and let her be displayed before everybody. And let them all be envious of the beautiful woman that he is with. Remind them of his glory as king. You think the garden and the gold cups and the pavement that we're all sitting on and the couches that you're reclining on drunk are really something to see? Wait till you get a load of this girl 
She is amazing. And on top of that, she is all mine and none of yours. But the plan is ruined because as the eunuchs go off to go tell Vashti to come on in, she tells them to go pound sand. Right? (laughs) She's like, look, (laughs) I understand what the king is saying, but I'm not coming. Uh, Now, some Jewish commentators, early writers on this book, uh, speculated that she didn't want to come because the actual request was that she was to come in her royal crown and nothing else. And she was not going to be displayed before his guests in that way. But the text doesn't specify that specifically. Regardless, the king loses face in front of his nobles. Remember, this is an Eastern culture. Okay? And the, the worst thing that happened to you is that you would lose face, that you would be embarrassed publicly in front of other people. And the king has just had this 187-day party to show off how big and impressive and grand and glorious he is. And he gives a command to his wife, and she says, dude, go fly a kite. So what has this just done? 187 days of showing off my grandeur and glory capped off by what reveals that I'm not even grand and glorious in my own house. Right? Y'all may be impressed by me and my my pomp and glory, but my wife is not so much. (laughs) Right? Um, So the king is embarrassed. And the king is enraged. And so he asked the wise men what to do. And their plan is brilliant. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Because think about this, okay? Everyone has been drinking for the last seven days. So you always make good decisions when you've been drinking, right? (laughs) But these guys, uh, again, not really. You don't, okay? If you want to make a dumb decision, just involve alcohol in your life, right? And, um, and so the, all these guys have been drinking, and one of the wise men says, well, I tell you what we need to do. We need to make sure that this doesn't happen ever again to you and, and also not to any other man in the whole kingdom. Because, you know, if, if word gets out that the queen can tell the tell the king uh, off and not obey his commands, then none of us husbands will ever have a moment's peace. Our wives will all be telling us that you know they don't have to do what we say, and we just can't have that, right? So now the king, now think about this now. This has happened with a small group of people. Outside of this small group of people, nobody knows what has occurred. So the wise men's plan is to notify everyone in the entire empire about what has happened and why they shouldn't do that. You see the the humor in that? Like, hey, we don't want word to get out. So we're going to make sure word goes out to everybody. (laughs) Okay. But because the king feels 
like his ego got stroked. Well, we're going to make sure that she never sees you ever again. She didn't want to come see you. Fine. She doesn't get to see you ever. Right? I, I'm kind of questioned how wise these guys really were. So the problem was they didn't want it to be known that Vashti had disrespected the king and their solution was to tell everybody that Vashti had disrespected the king. But as a result, had been deposed as queen. Um, these wise, for wise men, these guys are not so bright. Uh, now, I think this story is pretty funny so far. I mean, it really is. I think it's included in our Bibles partly for the humor effect of it, right? But because the, the man who calls himself king of kings, ruler over the whole earth, is stopped in his tracks by his own wife who refuses to be part of his arrogant display of his power. So his sovereign rule is somewhat limited, shall we say, right? What's the point of this chapter? Why is this here? Why is this in our Bibles? Why does God include this story in his word? Well, within the context of Esther itself is to tell us how it came to be that Xerxes, beginning in the third year of his reign, was in need of a new queen. Now, the events between chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's about a four-year span, actually. It's about a four-year gap between here because he goes off to war in Greece after this and comes back defeated in need of a new queen because by then it's like, oh, hey, wait, uh, we got rid of the old one. Uh, we need to do something about that, right? And that sets up the situation in chapter 2 and the rest of the book. But it's to tell, So it's to tell us how, how is it that Xerxes, the king of kings, needed a new queen to start with, different from the one he started out with. But it's also to make the point that even though he is never mentioned in this chapter, in this entire book, in fact, that God is the true king over all kings. And his power may not be obvious in the way that King Ahasuerus' power is obvious, but it is nevertheless real. And it always accomplishes his good and loving will for his people, even if they... And we don't always notice. You see, if we were part of this Jewish community that this book was originally written for, what you would have seen all around you was the vast power and wealth of the Medo-Persian Empire stretching from Ethiopia to India and from eastern Greece to Bactria. You would have seen everywhere you looked their officials, their satraps, their languages, their gods, their troops, their power, and you, the people of God, the chosen ones, the descendants of Abraham, the recipients of the covenant to whom belong the prophets and the Shekinah glory and the deliverance from Egypt by God's miraculous hand and the ones who had the temple in which God's own presence dwelt once upon a time. Are a rump of a nation, tiny splinter of what once existed, a shadow of your former glory, even though you are the ones through whom Messiah is to come. 
and you would see the contrast and you would feel it. The nation doesn't even exist in any formal sense except as part of a larger province called Trans-Euphrates. The other side of the river, essentially. Where's, where's Israel? I don't know. It's somewhere on the other side of the river somewhere. The temple is a pale imitation of Solomon's. The city of Jerusalem is ruined without walls. The tribes are scattered across Assyria, Babylonia, and Persia with just a few back in the land that God promised. And it would be easy for them to look around and ask, where is God in all of this? I thought the return from exile would be a lot better than this. Is God here? Is He still at work with us and for us? And in fact, I think that's why He's not mentioned in the book. Because his own people at this time of exile are having trouble seeing him and recognizing that he is there with them and directing their circumstances and working even though they are under the the rule and power of another empire that God has not given up on them and that he is still with them. And I don't know, here in 2022... But my guess is that maybe some of you have felt the same way. You aren't living in exile necessarily, but the past two years have not been a picnic. Amen? If they were, somebody definitely forgot to bring the sandwiches. Amen? It has not been a six-month banquet. Maybe you've had to change jobs. Maybe you've lost people close to you due to COVID or some other disease. If the stats are to be believed, the number of overdose deaths in this country are at an all-time high. We've never had worse years than the last two as far as drug overdoses go. The number of people seeking counseling for anxiety and depression vastly exceeds the number of counselors available to meet with them. If you need counseling, prepare to wait six to eight weeks before you can get in to see someone. Maybe your faith has been buffeted by all the challenges that you did not expect. Maybe you have doubts about whether or not the things that we talk about every week here are really true and whether God is really working. And if that's where you're at, then this passage and this book are God's gift to you. They are for you. They are here to remind you that everything you see with your eyes isn't all that appears to be. And everything that you are not yet seeing is more real than you realize. The circumstances you see with your eyes are not nearly as insurmountable as they appear. The power of the world's kings, as vast as it might look, is less than it appears. 
God is still here. And God is still at work in your life and in my life and in the lives of all his people in every country all over the world because he is the true king of kings. Amen? He is the one who rules all things. And he is the one who is bringing all things, even suffering, even sickness, even death, even tragedy, even job struggles, even COVID, even whatever you can list. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Working all things together for your good, for my good, for his glory, for all time, for all his people across the entire globe. And he will continue to do so. And we have Jesus' own rock-solid promise that he will never abandon us. Not for one moment. I love the end of Matthew. I love the great commission passage there where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But a lot of people forget the last line. Behold, I am with you. The text says, every day until the end of the age. Every day. Jesus is with us. Amen? So, if you're discouraged today, don't be discouraged. But Jesus is with you. If you can't see what God is doing in the world right now and why he's allowing some of the stuff that he's allowing to happen, trust me. Trust, more importantly, the word of God. God's power, even when you don't see it, is still at work. He is still present with you. He still loves you. He is still working for your good and his glory behind the scenes and the power of all the things in the world is much less than it appears. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we might have eyes to see, that we might be like the servant of Elisha, who when Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes, would look and see Angels and chariots of fire surrounding him on the hills. Father, we know that your angels surround and protect us. We know more than that, that you are with us by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Uh, and your perfect and loving presence is orchestrating every circumstance in our lives for our good and for your glory. And Father, we love you for that. We love you because you first loved us and you called us to yourself and you saved us. And you continue to work on our behalf. Father, help us to see you in our daily circumstances, whatever they are, and help us to trust you through them. Through every good day, every ordinary day, every terrible day. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.